Welcome to a new episode of Technoculture. I'm your host, Federica Bressan, and today my guest is Gottfried Willem Raas, founder and president of the Logos Foundation, Flanders' unique professional research and production center for experimental musics, musical robotics and audio art. Welcome, Gottfried. Thank you. You are a true renaissance man of our times. You are well versed in so many different domains, but music is definitely a common denominator. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us about your relationship with music? What are you about, Hotfrit? Well, from very early on, actually when we started before we started with Logos, I was fascinated by sound as a way, as a tool for music, for expression, but non-verbal expression. And for me, early on, music was not just about playing scores, existing music, imitating music that had been pre-taught by others, but how can I use sound as an expressive tool with, without any semantics, without referring to an outer world? So sound just as referring to formal concepts of our minds, either that or expressive things, emotions if you want to narrow it down, things like that. So I thought to do that, we have to develop tools because this is not the standard practice at our conservatory and music schools because at the conservatories you are taught the technique of mastering a given instrument to use that to realize existing scores. You stressed that you were interested in the non-verbal aspect of communicating with music. But isn't music the non-verbal sonic language par excellence? Yeah, of course. Of course it is. But it's not always free expression. What they want you to do at the conservatory is express yourself through a given, mostly historical, text. You, you play Beethoven, etc. And then you can project your own emotional world into that score, which also means sort of a decapitation of what you really want to do because you have to conform to the, why, the areas of expression provided within that score, within the constraints of that score. If you want to go crazily wild in the appassionata, you can't do that because that's not in the notes. So you have to enter to identify yourself with some part of music history. And this is an extremely conservative attitude. Of course, it's very good for keeping the tradition within a culture, because if you change every five seconds, of course, uh, there would be no, no tradition, and even probably the notion of culture would cease to exist. But the thing is that by, by repeating the past all over, you actually limit the expression of the individual very, very much. Not only that, you also limit it by the tools that are given to you for this kind of non-verbal expression that we call music. If you are supposed to express yourself on the piano, you should always realize that the piano is an instrument invented, well, 18th, 19th century, there are some earlier uh, things, but okay, basically that, and that the piano is optimized for a certain repertoire. For certain music, music taught, for instance, in equal temperament with 12 notes an octave. So if you think of music that goes, you're, you're not helped by this piano. 
because the piano will frame this in the 12 notes, etc., that you have available there, only, only with, with that material. Clearly, there is nothing wrong with a piano, but it's a tool for the expression of a certain epoch of music in our culture. I think every time you have to reconceive and rethink the tools for musical expression that we use, and it is in no way evident to use these old tools in the 21st century. I find it completely not normal that there are still play people playing the violin, for instance. Because the violin is optimized for tonal music, it's tuned in fifths, it has this awkward position, it's very unhealthy, by the way. It has all, all sorts of, of problems with it. Why would we still use such ancient tools, other than for repeating the past? Because it's clear that you're not going to do Tchaikovsky's violin concerto on something else. Of course, it, it must be violin. But if you now want to express yourself, now in our time, it is in no way evident to use the violin. There are two things that I'd like to say to you as a response to what you just said, and maybe then you can elaborate further. One is, I understand the frustration or the will to break free from uh, the boundaries of the traditional instruments. But didn't we have this conversation a hundred years ago? with the futurists who started challenging uh, the concept of music, of sound itself. Noise, acoustically, is sound, but it wasn't obvious that it would be legitimized as compositional material. So why are we still having this conversation today in this, seems to me, exact same terms? And number two, Breaking with tradition in terms of tonality, this is also something not new. This is even older than a hundred years. Well before electroacoustic instruments came about, atonal music was exploring uh, the realm outside of tonality and it was perfectly played on the traditional instruments. Then electroacoustic instruments made it possible to include the sound spectrum in the composition as a compositional parameter. You could compose your own sound. Sure, and now digital instruments basically make this possibility available to everyone. So what do you mean exactly when you express this will to transcend tonality? Haven't we done this already to the extent in which it was doable because the rest of us who listens to popular music is used to tonality and pop music shows no uh, intention whatsoever to move away from tonality anytime soon. So what do you mean exactly by that? First of all, to a remark on going back to the futurist, it's clear that I'm not the inventor of the thought of free musical expression, nor of the thought of using new tools and developing new tools for that expression. Of course it connects, and it all started actually in the futurist, mostly in the futurist era, because that was at, at the source of it. And we are just a continuation of that thought that has been ongoing since then. Uh, as to your reaction, as to all the classical music being tonal, of course, but pop music also being tonal, the question is, what is in our culture the role of different musics. And I think pop music has a very different role. 
it's it's not really about music, I think, so much. Because if you would take it from a musicological point of view, I do an analysis of pop music, you always have one four five, one four five, <laughs> and a four four meter, etc. Always the same over and over. What changes? Well, the sounds, uh, the the videos around it, the visuals, the sexual components in it, that changes stylistically very much over time. Those elements, but the music in C, there is no innovation there. And it's clear, why is there no innovation? Because it's a product on a market. It's something that sells, something that people pay for, etc. And they don't do it for musical analysis or anything like that. So innovation within pop music is, in my opinion, barely thinkable. And actually, if it exists, and it exists to a certain extent, it becomes marginal to the pop music, because there are, are clearly people that belong to pop music and have replaced borders. But it's not followed. For instance, people like FX Twin or, uh, well, well, there's many, Sonic Youth and things like that. But there are borderline phenomena in pop music. What we do not see is that these groups that are deviant in their stylistic approach, influence the mainstream. The mainstream stays what it has ever been. And apart from the sound, there is not much difference between songs from the 60s <laughs> and things now. Maybe some, like techno, but still, techno is not mainstream. That's marginal within the pop music scene. That's not what makes big sales. Now, that's one thing. So, the, ro the role... I always took as actually a continuation of a longer tradition of the effect of, of making what I call art music and the contributing to the development of tools for musical expression. And that's, it's not popular and it doesn't have to be popular. It's certainly not means mainstream. It will certainly never be mainstream either. So it's not my hope that by repeating avant-garde or experimental music that will ever make big, big sales. I don't have that hope. Neither has a mathematician the hope that his articles will be read by millions of people all of a sudden because they invest a lot in mathematics. There's, there's nothing wrong with things that, that work on a small scale. There is nothing wrong with laboratories, with experimentation and development of tools. I think measuring it by the number of people that are interested is a wrong point of view, is a wrong starting point. How did you materialize this will for exploration into your career? How did you translate it into practice? How did you embed it into your works? Oh, I started early on when we started with Logos in the late 60s. It was electronics. I made a lot of, designed a lot of analog uh, synthesizers that were specially designed for live performance because it was sort of protest against the electronic music studio was very much in all the universities and radio institutions had an electronic music studio etc but f from my point of view those were very bad tools in fact because you, you you there was no spontaneity you could only make realize a tape product and then broadcast it or well, put it on loudspeakers in a concert hall. And the whole performance aspect, the whole idea of musicianship went completely lost. So that's why I was interested in live electronics so that you could play the electronics on stage, if possible with as much as possible bodily contact with the electronics. So I'm not the only one did that way. Michel Weiss, for instance, did also open circuits that you could touch so that there would be some bodily involvement because with traditional electronics, like a, a 
commercial synthesizer. You have lots of patch cords, knobs, and buttons to turn, etc. And you're actually far, you kept far away from the electrical part of the circuit. That was considered dangerous, don't touch it, etc. So that was not the musician's part. But that's the subversive aspect of uh, not only my work, but at those times certainly was in my work, was present in my work, was this bodily involvement in electricity and feeling the electricity even through your body <laughs> and by that way playing the circuits. But that was uh, the, the beginning was electronics because, of course, when we started with Logos and we started realizing that the old instruments were not the perfect tools for new musical expression, what was the hope? electronics because that was a thing of the future of course everybody wanted into there after a while we started realizing that elect electronics were very crippled musical instruments first of all because they cause a lot of dissociation if you use electronics you have to use loudspeakers and if you use loudspeakers you have a big liar on stage because what is a loudspeaker it's a paper cone driven by an electromagnet that pretends it is everything except what it really is you, you can make it sound like a violin, you can play a piano on it, you can do whatever. But a loudspeaker doesn't reveal the slightest thing of the source, of the acoustic source that you are perceiving. So that's why I'm saying a loudspeaker is a liar. Now, that's not a problem in C, because for reproduction that's just fine. But it undermines musicianship, because it adds a layer of dissociation between the actions you perform on stage and what the audience really hears. Because you turn a knob, etc., and the loudspeaker does something, something. The relation between both is completely obscured. This is not the case with a violin. A violin is very direct. You touch the string, you bow it, and say, you, the relationship between the manipulation of the violin and the sound is obvious. It's almost, it's so readable. You can anticipate on the sound by looking at the movement of a violinist. You cannot anticipate on the sound if you play a synthesizer and turn knobs, etc. Because you could just be preparing a patch and later on you push a button and then it goes off. <laughs> Things like that. See, that's the problem with electronics. And that's where, first of all, I started uh, in my research, and I think that's the original part of my research, rejecting loudspeakers and going back to acoustic sounds, and that's where the robots come into the field. And secondly, for the performance aspect, the musicianship aspect, I developed my invisible instruments, which uses radar and sonar systems to capture body movement, to translate that via computer circuitry, etc., to map that on whatever output. In the last 20 years, it's always robots and acoustical outputs, but they are driven by gesture, by, by movements of, of real flesh and body people on stage in a relevant way, not... Uh, sort of mapped on, <laughs> on something with knobs. <laughs> From the machine, so you, if you hear a sound, you can trace it, you can find it, and there will always be a physical object that's responsible for it, that causes the sound, even though it is completely computer-controlled. But it's a mechanical sound, computer-controlled mechanical sound. Logos Foundation celebrates 50 years of activity this year. Earlier on, in 2018, you released a book to celebrate this important achievement. And I understand we expect big celebrations next week? Well, big, 
Pretty big, we try as big as we can, but we are a little bit handicapped by the fact that our subsidies were cut down completely. So, <laughs> but yet, we are still capable of doing quite a bit of things. In the beginning of November, we will uh, have many presentations uh, with Logos projects, not strictly concerts, but also things that are in public spaces, in libraries, even in hospitals, etc., installation projects, uh, street projects, animations, and also a concert, etc all over the city of Ghent. And the city of Ghent is home to the Logos Foundation, so you are a household name here. I think you're an icon, actually, of the cultural scene of Ghent. Uh, for those who know you a little less, would you like to tell us, please, the story of Hotfried and Logos? Yeah, it came into existence sort of by accident, because in 1968 I wrote... At the conservatory, I wrote a piece, a composition that was called Logos 3 over 5. It was on prime number relationship between the tempi of the, that the musicians had to play to. There was a piece for five musicians. And for that piece, I designed, because it was very difficult to keep it metrically together, an automated conductor, which later on became actually my first robot. Now, that piece at the conservatory when it where it was performed made a big scandal. And we were, to go short, all thrown out of the conservatory. Because with such music you could never make a career, they said. You have no, you're not gifted for music. And all the Logos people were thrown out. But we stayed together. And, uh, well, I went to the university, studied musicology and philosophy and some more things, etc. So... Now, we got, we, the conservatory was completely put aside for at least 15 years and played no role anymore in what Logos did. But we were very active. We, we went on tour. We started picking up repertoire, international repertoire from Avangard Music, made our own pieces, made our own instruments. Uh, we organized concerts. We, this is not by just by chance. It is because... Being in Ghent, we felt, with our contemporary music attitude, very isolated. There was barely anything else apart from the university studio, the IPEM, at that time. There was basically nothing. So we said, we, we shouldn't do this on our own. We should have international contacts. And the best way of having intense international contacts is, of course, inviting colleagues over from abroad. So I got a, sm a small budget from the university to organize those concerts, etc., and to invite people to do concerts in Ghent. And then we had close contacts and so made friends and we built up a complete network all over which was very very international in fact so the conductor of your logos composition became your first musical robot when did you start thinking oh i could make more robots now i could have a full robot orchestra well that's much 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 later because when i designed the automated conductor i didn't think of it as being a robot although it was a programmable machine. It was just a tool for keeping my musicians together. And then, as I said, I went to, we went with Logos to a long period of electronics and electronic sounds. And we don't call analog synthesizers robots in any sense because there are no moving parts, there is no, well, there's no automation, no motors, no mechanics, nor anything. Those were just synthesized, and we've done that for about 20 years. And it's only at the very end of the 80s, actually the first robot is from 89, the saxophone, that I started consciously designing specific musical robots, so programmable acoustical machines. And from then it took, took, took off, and 
in those last 25, it's little more than 25 years, I've made some 73 robots already. So it's quite a big orchestra. What I find interesting is that you haven't just made one robot and then another and then another. You actually thought of them as capable of playing together. So not instances, but actually a group. It's an orchestra, they all networked. They can communicate with each other, with the musicians, and they can watch at the movements, at gesture of performers. They can listen to each other and to musicians' inputs, and all these things are possible with the robots, yes. That's, that's the idea, to have the really interactive ensemble, not just a playback machine. Otherwise, you wouldn't go any further than what was already possible by the end of the 19th century with the orchestrions and the music automates which could also play from a role, etc., in a more or less sophisticated way, although without much expression. <laughs> With modern techniques, it's possible to give all these robots the full range of uh, musical expression, like going pianissimo, etc. Now, with these old machines, they were they worked with punched paper rolls. So you had either a hole or no hole in the paper. So the note was on or it was off and nothing in between. You had no velocity control, as you, as we say in uh, MIDI terminology. So n actually no expression other than timing. But that was about it. <laughs> now, with these robots, the advantage you can do virtually anything in terms of dynamics, in terms of speed also. So they overclass what human, human performers can possibly do. The example is very trivial. If I take my piano... First of all, it has 88-note polyphony, so we have only 10 fingers, so there it beats the human performer, that's clear. But also it's capable of having individual dynamic control over each finger. Now, human hands can do very much and are very subtle, but you will never succeed playing anything reasonably fast with each finger in another dynamic. We do, simply do not have the muscles and we will never develop them. Because we simply do not, anatomically, we do not have them. This is beyond the possibilities of humans. So also on the expressive potentiality, these robots go further than what people can do. It doesn't apply to all robots, though, because for some there is still big trouble in development. For instance, string robots are very difficult, string instruments. And although there are many attempts in the orchestra to make such instruments, uh, they have to be more modest. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other, the organs, it's more than perfect. The piano is also, I think, near to close to perfect. The wind instruments are very good, and they can do all sorts of inflections. They can also play microtonally, etc. They're the only capability that's very difficult to implement. That's multiphonics. But okay, those are actually not a, not the common sounds. <laughs> The robot orchestra can sound in many different ways. There's not just one type of sound that is specific to the orchestra, and it can play many different genres. But let's listen to one example of how it can sound. We are going to listen to a short excerpt now from a composition which is... Which is uh, Lonely Robots. That's a piece that I wrote for the Herdy robot, which is a... Hurdy-gurdy, yeah. <laughs> an automated hurdy-gurdy, <laughs> where I did an experiment in uh, overtones, etc. And if you, you have, have two versions of that piece, a platonic version, which is according to the so-called just overtone series, and it doesn't sound at all. It doesn't work because it's not conformed to what 
the physics dictate. And then I made a second version, Scientia Vincere Tenebras, where everything is correct, but it's not just intonation anymore, because all the proportions of the overtones are irrational numbers, but at least it sounds nice. <laughs> you do is clearly very creative both the instruments and the compositions is it art what is art Gottfried? the question whether it is it is art for me is not a very interesting question actually musicians do not have to deal with that question too much because it's music anyway and whether music is art or not art music is a sociological question finally Research is something else, and, and science is something else, because there you have results, etc. But I have a whole theory on the so-called theme of artistic research. For me, the only research part that you, from an artist's point of view, 
can do, that makes sense to do, has to do with the development of tools for expression. Because as an artist, you use these tools. You're the first user. So you're also the first one to develop them, to develop them and to judge on them, to evaluate them. I think scientists could not develop a musical instrument. You have to be a musician in order to do that, because a musician understands the needs of the instrument, not a musicologist, not an engineer. So for me, that's, I, I think even uh, the whole area of artistic research should be strictly limited to that aspect, because other things artists are just not good at. <laughs> like cataloging of writing, music history, etc. Should, that should not be left to artists. <laughs> writing so-called artist texts is generally bullshit. It's generally just verbs, 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 and uh, nothing concrete, nothing that can be tested. Whereas make developing tools and contributing to the development of tools is something that is testable, is controllable, just like anything science should be controllable, repeatable, and, well, checkable. Besides the development of tools, there can just be uh, a reflection. So an artist cannot just make things, but also reflect over things, and that can be part of his or her work. Oh, yeah, sure. I've never said that all machines that you develop, all tools you develop, ought to be physical tools. Of course, it can be mental tools. It can be algorithms for composition, for instance. There are pure formal structures either in software or just actually on paper as, as thought machines. Of course, that's also part of the kits of tools available to artists. I think it's essential. It's not only material robots or instruments. Okay, so there's always a pragmatic element built into artistic practice. Can then maybe a difference with science be that researchers normally start with a research question that determines every action that is planned afterwards. If everything goes well, quote-unquote, you have solved a problem, you have answered that question. Whereas if something unexpected happens, that is where you leave the door open to accidental discoveries, etc. So serendipity is definitely allowed for, but it's not really built in the process. Whereas I see artistic practice as more free, less bound to the specific goal. It's more like, yeah, let's find a direction we want to go to and start moving towards it and see what happens. If you know what I mean, artists can keep an open mind in the best sense in a different way than a researcher can do. What's your take on this? Do you see art as being less bound by a research question? Oh, no, I don't think that there is no research question. There can be a very, for me in any case, there's always a very clear research question. If I develop a piano with a certain purpose, I want it to be expressively more capable than humans, I have to clearly define what is expression on the piano. What, I have to give an analysis of this. I have to say also against what I'm going to measure it. So that that it would be that it would be no research question. No, no, no. I don't think artists that work in the wild on their intuition and associations ever will do any kind of research work. Research work presupposes a question, a problem. But I think any serious artist has problems all the time. Otherwise, he's a craftsman. He performs an art that he has learned and performs it maybe better and better over the years. But he's certainly not a researcher. Does science inform your art, and how? 
continuously. First of all, well, not only science, also technology, you have to take the broad side, because since I work a lot with electronics, it is clear that every time a new generation of microprocessors comes out, this has advantages and will be applied and you'll find applications in new designs that I make. Now, you can say, oh, oh, but that's technology, that's not science, but actually that goes pretty much hand in hand, because if we develop new microprocessors, new algorithms become possible. <laughs> and so, and those those come clearly from the pure science point of view. Actually, many things, tech, there is a close link between technology and science. Think, for instance, of the development of uh, special chips for physiologic. Physiologic was developed, scientific thing from uh, mathematics, etc., and then was applied to electronics. So there is implementations of physiologic on chip level now. And these are available for people like me and people in the industry, of course. And this collaboration with science was encouraged, was facilitated by your contact with the university uh, since the early years of Logos. Yes, certainly, because I, as I said, we were thrown out of the conservatory <laughs> and then I went to university and it was not such, such a bad student, also took special classes in math and, <laughs> and in electronics. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do your robots reflect this 25 or so years of technological evolution? Oh, clearly. Clearly. Also, should people forget often that these robots are not something you make and then it's finished forever. Many of these robots, particularly the older ones, went through many stages of upgrading. For instance, in the first, if you would see pictures of the first version of the robot orchestra, you would see that each robot had a laptop to control it on its own. And it was connected with a flat cable from the printer port of the laptop to all the electronics and thing. And then the, computer, the laptops were con uh, connected in a network. Now, it was a pain in the ass after a couple of years. First of all, because all these laptops wanted to upgrade to another Windows version, etc. So, oh, well, there was always a risk involved. <laughs> Let's pray that they don't want to do an upgrade at the concert because that stops everything, etc. It was a really a pain in the ass. So, but at that time... There was no alternative, because the microprocessors available were small 8-bit machines with a clock frequency of some 8 megacycles at the, at the very most, etc., and could just not compete for network operations with what a laptop could do. So that was an alternative, but it took only a few years, and ARM came out, PIC came out, and many microchip, and many brands came out with, with Powerful microprocessors, first eight bitters, but fast machines, 40 meg or something. That then you start, and then I started rebuilding the machines and incorporating microprocessors in the robots so that we could get rid of all these laptops. So now we have just one single server to control the or or orchestra, and every machine is completely autonomous and has uh, its own microprocessor systems. Celebrating 50 years of Logos Foundation and even more years of experience, what's your take on today's scene? What is your perspective, especially on this combination of art and science, uh, even art science as one word, being in trend now? Artists visiting research labs and researcher being, um, well, receiving the input of artists to expand the horizon of their research approach. What are your thoughts on art and science as characterized today? I don't think art and science is, is such a novel thing as a combination. Maybe in terms of public appeal and of, of 
of well, see if if you think about the topic, think about uh, someone like Lev Terman with the Termin. This was very much at the edge of technology in the very beginning of the 20th century. Stokowski has done writings where he anticipated on seeing the whole future of music in electronics, etc. And then we are speaking of the 20s of last century. So it's not such a novel thing. But I must say, in the last years, there has been a stronger focus on it. And that has to do by the fact that the music scene that is involved in these technologies has gained, in a certain way, a status of its own. Because I think in the mid-20th century, it was absolutely marginal. It had no position whatsoever. There's many things written in books about it, but if you see the role it plays in music culture, this was marginal. What we see today is that there is no music culture anymore. In the, in the, well, in the mid-20th century, to simplify things, you had classical music in concert halls, etc. You had pop music, things that were sold in 78, tour discs, etc. came out every week, a new one, and th things like that. And you had an upcoming jazz scene with a public of its own. That was, I'm simplifying, but that was basically, basically the scene. What we see now, the classical music culture well, I exaggerate, but it's sort of dying out. You see, the public is getting older and older and older, and it's you don't have to be, well, <laughs> clairvoyant to see that in, in a couple of generations it's going to be done, because the, the public will just die. Oh, but aren't there so many young musicians, talented musicians being trained in classical music? There are competitions, CDs, like it's a lively scene. It's pushed very much, but still look at the objective numbers and not the propaganda, etc. It's going down. All the theatres that get renovated, renovate the theatre for in order to have less uh, seats, etc., so that it's easier to sell out. Also for the theatres, by the way. The theatres are doing that also massively. <laughs> now they are reconstructing Bailoca Hall in Ghent. Reduce the number of seats? Yeah, of course, but if you reduce the number of seats, it's easier to sell out. <laughs> No, but I don't. But but okay. But that was not my main issue. That's the classical music thing. If you take the pop music scene, it's never been so des uh, diverse diverse as it is nowadays. You have scenes for sort of everything, every subgenre. You have heavy metal, punk. I don't know. Well, well, all 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 these names, etc. And they all have specific audiences of their own. There is still a little bit jazz left, also. It's less important than it was. Free jazz died, and okay, it's a club circuit, but it's still in existence. You have, well, for every music genre, you have sort of a sub uh, community that attached to it. What you have very little is, in fact, crossovers people that go from the one into the other. I see no people from classical music going to a techno festival, rarely. I think crossover is actually a name of genre. Oh, again, yes, yes, but I didn't want <laughs> I didn't want to mean it in that way. <laughs> What's the difference between art, creativity and craftsmanship? For instance, a notion as creativity is one of the most misused words that that there is in in common speech. For me, creativity is problem solving. It's where you have a problem and you find a solution for that problem that's not given, etc. So creativity is sort of opposed to craftsmanship. 
What is then that spontaneous talent of someone who doesn't know what to do and is inspired to pick up a brush and paint a picture? Or children that draw spontaneously? That's not problem solving, or is it? That's expression, that's not creativity. That's expressive capability. Of course people have them. People confuse expression and even original expression with creativity. Creativity applies not only to the arts, it also applies to science. If Schrödinger comes out or Heisenberg comes out with a new formula, that's a creative thing because he thinks in physics out of the box to design a new formula, etc. If Gödel imagines this, this strategy for, for his famous proof, etc., that's creativity. That contributes to the progress of science. But there is there's the problem. There are artists can be creative. Some are, but you're not creative all the time. Because if you find solutions for certain problems, for instance, there's a creative moment, to give an example in the arts, in cubism. If you want to have different facets of a reality at the same time in a painting, well, that's where cubism came in. You have the two planes in one and a single painting. If the futurist for the first time tried to express movement in a painting, they took probably the idea for photography, you have many times the same image a little bit shifted and you have an illusion of, of, of speed. That, for me, is a creative moment in the development of the arts. This thing. But the fact of painting well and painting nicely, there is nothing creative about that. That's craftsmanship. Or that is expression, if you want. It's craftsmanship in as far as it shows your mastery of existing recipes for, 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 for expressing yourself within whatever medium you're using. So for music, for instance, it has always meant at the conservatory mastery of classical harmony and counterpoint for composition. And for instruments, mastering the violin, play your scales fast enough, etc., etc. For piano, the same. There were all these exercises. That's craftsmanship. There's nothing to do with creativity whatsoever. Although someone who is expressing something can be creative while doing it, no? Depends what problem he is solving. You cannot tell that from... And then there is another distinguishment, of course. Because I would uh, use creative only even in as far as it has a social relevance. I mean, you can be, of course, creative on your own, in your little ego, by changing the boundaries of your knowledge, etc. But if your boundaries are very limited, the social relevance, the cultural relevance of your creativity will be very limited also. So I would be careful in calling that too much, stressing the creativity aspect too much in that, because if a problem has already been solved by someone else, there is just no merit to it. <laughs> and the other thing is, is, of course, the other notion that you mentioned is, of course, research. Now, research is just a question of methodology. Of course, it needs research, needs research questions, just like creativity needs research questions. But not all research is creative. Some research can be very, very like craftsmanship, very much like craftsmanship. For, for instance, suppose a musicologist wants to know how much percent of the population listen to rock and roll, etc. That's a scientific question. And you have to count listeners and do enquetes and, and things, forms, etc. to find that out. But there is no creativity involved in that kind of research. None. 
It's just the craftsmen, of, according to the rules, scientifically do the methodology, etc., and come to your results. It's nothing to do with creativity. It's craftsmanship. Just like, like someone who plays a piece for the Elizabeth competition on the violin, it's craftsmanship. It's nothing to do with creativity. There may be expression, but that's, see, these are separate elements, and they can combine in some forms, but we have to keep the notions more or less defined, clearly defined and apart. Do you think that our society even lacks the word to describe a well-rounded profile? Like, we don't have the box for the Renaissance man, somebody who is educated in philosophy but can also build things. A polymath uh, is not actual anymore. And if you are well-versed in many different things, you're actually perceived as a fragmented person. Because these types of characters are rare today, don't you think? That's what I see, because it's encouraged also by the, by the scientific and cultural politics. If you enter a project, it also has to be very well-defined within the constraints of one certain discipline, etc. Things that go over borders are generally rejected in terms of proposals for grant applications, etc. You, you barely can do that because you have specialized committees, etc. And if you don't conform, you fall out of it. And you're, if you want, still to want to do that, you have to, be, to work on your own very much and fight your own way through things. And it's much harder. 50 years ago as well as today? Well, 50 years ago, because there were barely any structures at the beginning... It was in a certain way freer, but the other, at the other end, there were no means. Because now we, there is a politics for a subsidy for, for all sorts of things. Well, before 1985, it didn't exist in Belgium. There was no rule system. You could, you, could, you could apply to the government with political support to get funding for something, but it was not based on a law system, on rules of any kind. It just depended on who do you know there and who is going to eventually support you. So that, that would, the advantage was that you could come out with something completely out of the box and get, it, and get a grant for it. Now, these chances now are much smaller. For instance, to give you an example, they did cut the subsidy for a Logos Foundation because you, on the forms for the grant application, you have to fill in lots of uh, tickle, uh, check, those check boxes. You have to know, are you a concert organization? If not, oh, you're a production center. If, if not, you're distribution or you're a publication. You do philosophical thinking, you do reflection, etc. If you, like we would tend to do, check all the boxes, they say you're a fool, you can't do that. So we cannot have philosophical reflection at the same time to be a production center and do receptive concerts. No, that's impossible. Then you're rejected on, on that ground alone already. So that, that's what's so insane about this system. Logos does not coincide with the robot orchestra, although it's very famous for it. Uh, Logos does many other things. We've now been talking about music and mo mostly focusing on instrument development, robot development, and things that are presented for audiences in the, the ritual that we generally call a concert, where people come at a given time, etc. But Logos has been doing many different things, interactive projects in the air, in public spaces, and things like, like that, which are not concert projects. 
for instance, the Singing Bicycle Symphony. That's something with prepared bicycles where people pass away, etc. And that's, that's a strange thing for people to see, but nobody has ever heard it because you cannot hear it unless you participate. And even then, you don't have thing. It's It's flashy. It just uh, happens. Or the other projects, uh, uh, the tram stop, Halte in Dutch, where I amplify the rails of the tramway and have a loudspeaker at the pole where the people wait for the tram, so that you can hear the tram coming before you see it, which is an old idea from the American Indians, where they put their ear to the ground to hear whether horses are coming, etc. And later on, they did it with the railway. So I, I made that into an installation piece. Now, that's not a concert. That's just something where people walk by and say, hey, I hear something. Oh, Oh, later on they see the tram is coming because that makes a fantastic sound when the tram is coming, you see nothing. So that's something you happening, something you do in public life, in public spaces, etc., that attracts the people's audience to some sonic phenomenon, to some sound phenomenon. And that's, that's the whole purpose of it. Now we're going to listen to an excerpt from Tutkarp. What can you tell us about this piece? Well, that's a very bizarre piece. It's actually a duet between a boat that's equipped with car horns, some 140 car horns that are submerged under the waterline, and that is actually a sound motor, and it proves that with sound alone, your motor doesn't go very fast, because the, the way of propulsion is by these immersed car horns. But it's a duet. Next to the boat, there is a bathtub, an old ancient bathtub, with some 80 car horns immersed under the water line on it, and it's on a trolley, on wheels, etc. And the score is actually that the boat and the car have to follow each other as much as possible. Of course, the car has to go in the streets, the bat, the, the horn, the the tub with the horns and <laughs> the boat and they follow each other so they go wider spaces close spaces. you have all the echoes from the space and the water is always shaky that's why it kill, sounds at times a little bit like pigs being killed so this is a live recording from the event actually taking place in open air do you remember where it was I think this recording, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's a recording that we did in Ghent, but we also did it in Den Bosch and in many different cities, actually. Yeah, so it went on the road, even in Torino. <laughs>
once you were walking me through the large storage space here at Lojos, where you have a lot of the materials and the equipment that you have used in your performances and events along the years. And there is one that I liked in a particular way. It was the soundtrack project. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, the soundtrack project is another example of an absolutely not concert-oriented sonic event. It's where I made a machine, a tape recorder, so to speak, but the tape recorder without motors. The propulsion of the tape for the recording heads and the playback heads is done by walking and rolling off big reel of tape, some five kilometers of tape on an immense reel, etc. Now, what happens is that you record at walking speed, but as you know, walking speed is not a constant speed at all. It depends. If there's an obstacle, you will slow down a little bit, you will, will be shaky. So, although the sound of the environment may be cars that go vroom, 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 waf, 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 a dog, after recording with subjective walking speed, it sounds like because if the car passes by, you stop. If you stop, the recording speed goes down. At playback, because playback happens on the same tape a few milliseconds later, the opposite goes. So every time you, you break, you stop, the pitch goes all of a sudden in the glissando steep up, up to a full stop. Because if you stop, the tape is not running and you're not recording anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's one of the things, and I have, we have loudspeakers on our back, so people can immediately hear the result of what that does. And then, and that's the poetic aspect of it, the tape, we left, leave it on the ground and we bury it on the space. We have an explanation to the people where we say, hey, it's sad that every space has a visual way it looks, but actually what it sounds like is never preserved in the space. So we will give the sound of this space back to the space by burying it in the space. And we bury the whole length of tape over the whole length of the tragics, actually bury it where, where there's sparks and ground. If there's stone, we have to stick it with stickers to the, to the pavement and to the asphalt or something, because we're not going to break the asphalt. <laughs> The tape got buried behind you as you went on, so you didn't go home and listen to the tape. There was somebody walking behind you and taking care of burying the tape. Yeah, someone follows, buries the tape, and the tape is completely lost, so we do not come home with a tape. No, no, no. Actually, there is another aspect to it. The signal from the playback hats of the recorder is also broadcast via an illegal uh, FM radio station, so that people that have ghetto blasters in the park, etc., whether they want or not, they have this signal and they hear it on their ghetto blasters or their portable radio sets, whatever. This means that the tapes you buried are still there? Yeah. And they're where? We did the same project in, bought in Ghent many times. We did it in Antwerp, in Amsterdam, and along the Hudson River in New York all the way up from the Bronx and Harlem to Battery Park in the south. So there's some Logos tape buried in New York. Possibly, yeah. Who were you inspired by during your formative years? Who were you reading? What authors or artists, intellectuals, uh, were you looking up to? Well... One of the first influences in terms of reading and digesting, although it was very hard at the age that I read it, it was 14, was uh, Musique Formelle by Yanis Xenakis. 
because he gave descriptions of formal music, of formulas about how to draw music and do stochastics, etc. And I was fighting with that book because it was at that age it was very hard for me. But for me it was completely visionary because it was so opposed to everything that I was learned at the conservatory. I said, oh, this is really it. And my first moment of uh, exposure to this music is actually when I was six years old at the Philips Pavilion in uh, Brussels. There was a world exhibition in 58 where there was this Philips Pavilion where there was this piece officially by Varese, actually realized by other people, and the architecture was by Xenakis. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You were there. Poème électronique 58, Philips Pavilion, like, you were there. You have witnessed that. Of course I was there as a child. I can tell you the story. It's a very funny story, because my parents were involved in a choir and were supposed to sing there at Flemish days, because Flanders was considered marginal in the Brussels exhibition. They wanted to present Belgium as a French thing. But okay, that's political. But so, because my parents thought I was too young at six to stay at all these rehearsals with the choir and the orchestra, they put me in children's garden. But The ladies there spoke only French, and I was bilingual. I spoke Dutch and German. So I started crying the whole time, but they didn't understand. So they had a very smart idea, and they brought me, that little boy crying, to the Dutch pavilion. Now that happened to be exactly the Philips pavilion. And there the ladies there took care of me, put me in the front row, etc. And I could sit all evening long. I've done that many evenings in a row. Sit, sit and watch all these scholars, all these fantastic sounds there. And I was silent. So despite being so young, you actually have uh, vivid memories of that. Oh, yes. Yes, I have a complete memory of that. Well, complete. I know that it was with cars and things and, well... <laughs> In what kind of musical environment did you grow up? Oh, strictly very conservative classical. No pop music allowed, etc. Only heavy classical music. Bach, uh, Beethoven, Mozart. And you were trained as a classical musician? Well, at, at age six, I entered at the conservatory to study the piano, etc. At that time, you could enter the conservatory as a kid. So it was considered part of a good bourgeois education. <laughs> and I did sing in the, in the choir also. That's, that's why I can say in terms of classical background, I did sing the St. Matthew's Passion in all the parts, as a boy soprano, as an alto, as a tenor, and as a bass. <laughs> Not many people can say that. <laughs> so when did your fascination for breaking the rules Uh, pushing boundaries came about. When did it start showing? Well, but I say 58, Philips Pavilion plays a very important role there. It was my first exposure to something. It wasn't even presented as music as far as in my... It was just something sonic and completely else. It had nothing to do with Bach or with uh, the choir singing. It was just another experience and a completely new sonic world. And I found it fascinating. And shortly after, and I remember well that I never wanted to do my piano exercises, etc., unless the lid was taken off and I could see the, could see the little ducks biting on the strings, etc. And then I started doing preparations. What happens if I withhold the duck? The duck with the little hammers, you know, with felt. <laughs> so I started playing around. I found all these noises very interesting. And without having an example, I, I 
developed a feel for making sounds with this piano other than just by touching the keys and doing the, the practice, the exercises. And your parents said, what's wrong with our kid? Oh, well... Oh, they actually didn't intervene pretty much. Only if it went too noisy, etc., then they would protest, etc. And then, and that was also before '68. I may I was fascinated by tape recorders and things like that because I also had some contact with the IPAM studio in the around '65, I think, you know, '64, '65. I saw these tape recorders there, and I wanted at all price. I wanted a tape recorder myself, and so I built. I did build one completely from scratch with motors and, and, and everything. And I got that to work. And that was the first machine I used for making electronic be, uh, music with. Where did the knowledge about electronics come from? Oh, I studied that completely on my own and I got fascinated by it because I lived, as a child, I lived just across the laboratories of the, of the university in the cellar of Hendrik Conscienzestraat. Okay, it's now Gustav Maniel Street. And there was in, this, in the bottom level, there were laboratories for electronics, for glass uh, blowing and things like that. But electronics lab was very fascinating. And I sat, sat there with my legs down on, on the street watching to these engineers doing things etc always asking them questions and one day they gave me a component i got a resistor i didn't know it was a resistor but i was very proud oh i got a component and i told the engineer what it was and then the engineer said well it's a component like they use in the sputnik now the sputnik if you know was a satellite that was launched by the russians in 58 it was, and that was big in the news. The Russians were the first one to have a human object out of in outer space. <laughs> it did only beep, 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 but okay. <laughs> that was the, the first step. So I was very proud to have a component. Then with the little money I had, I bought a little booklet about boys and electronics. And then I learned about what the components were, what those fascinating color rings were on the components, how to read them, etc. I bought a soldering iron. I started making little circuits. First, a radio receiver, because always all these books about boys and electronics start with making a, re a radio receiver. Later on, I made a, a broadcasting station on the FM band. And there I got in trouble. I was 11 by then, because I got... I didn't get arrested, but it was confiscated by the police because obviously it is forbidden, it is illegal to have a broadcasting station. <laughs> and I just wanted it to talk to my friend who lived a couple of boy, uh, blocks away, etc. And I was curious to know whether he could listen to me. Probably my, my station was causing a lot of interference with all sorts of other things. I presume something like that. But in any case, they took it away. <laughs> When they saw it was just a little boy that did this, they didn't do anything. They were my mother, hey, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> But that was it. <laughs> But I lost my station. <laughs> so that, But formally, I never studied electronics. But I have been doing, I did science directions in the, at the secondary school, etc. But electronics, properly speaking, no. Only at the, when it came to doing my doctorate, It came out that I had quite developed quite some expertise because I did my doctorate on radar systems and uh, sonar systems for gesture recognition, and there is a lot of electronics involved in there. So then it took the reading committee for my doctorate to call in the engineering departments to read my thesis. <laughs> If someone happens to be in the Ghent area next week, 
Uh, can you repeat what they can see, uh, the celebrations for the 50th anniversary of Logos? So for the weeks at the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Logos, we will spread our interactive projects all over the city. We will have uh, robots that have, are equipped with built-in radar systems that can be played by the audience. There will be projects with, uh, that work on uh, brain waves, etc., where people with their brain wave control their own sonic environment. They get in sort of a capsule that's closed, it's called stereotaxi. Then we have uh, projects with water bubbles and objects that are submerged that you have to listen to with a stethoscope. This will be at Croke, I think. So there will be many, many places in Ghent we will present things. Some pubs will just show videos of all the Rogos stuff that's documented on video. There will be things in the museum. Well, projects everywhere. Do you plan to document these events, make a video recording so that people who can't be there or listen to this episode later than uh, the first week of November can uh, see something, look it up? I was sure some things will be videoed and we will make sort of a, a report of it to broadcast on video. Vid videoing it live makes maybe not much sense because the distance between the different places is large and you lose a lot of time. So we will make an edit that's representative for this aspect of the Logos work, I think. We bring this episode of Technoculture to an end with an excerpt from one of your early compositions, something you did before you had the robot orchestra. It's called Shifts. Would you like to introduce the piece? Shifts. And it's a piece, uh, originally a, a composition I made for the conservatory students, but it was way too difficult for them to perform well, so I quickly I made an electronic version that I later converted into a version for the robot orchestra and well it has gone through a whole series of revisions actually. What about the one we listen to now? This one, that's, that's the electronic version which I made for uh, samplers and uh, synthesizers which I realized and that was published by Experimental Intermedia in New York.
you for listening to Technoculture. Check out more episodes at technoculture-podcast.com or visit our Facebook page at Technoculture Podcast and our Twitter account, hashtag Technoculture Podcast. <laughs>